When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to remind you, peace of mind is tough to come by these days unless you have a Liberty Safe. With a Liberty Safe, you won't worry when you leave the house because you'll know your valuables are protected. And right now, you can get free delivery to your home on any Liberty Safe. Go to LibertySafe.com for factory direct pricing. LibertySafe.com, made in the USA, lifetime warranty, and peace of mind. LibertySafe.com. Show, doing the job of two men. My name is Mike Broom. I'm in for patents too today. Thanks for being with us. Of course, the debate on everybody's mind. We're going to uh, to ruin your day. We're going to play some sound from last night's debate, and uh, we've figured out uh, what the problems are. We've gone over them over and over, and now we're finding out what the solutions are. Let's run it down for you quickly, and then we'll do it in more detail. Um, guns are a problem. Government is the solution. Planned Parenthood needs more funding. Government is the solution. Um, what else did we find out that they were talking about? Oh, government's a problem. As Hillary Clinton was saying, big government, as, as a Republican say, government is the problem. The solution is, of course, government. So right now we're figuring out the Democrats and the government. We're going to figure out which of them is going to be able to make the government even bigger than it already is. I, I don't know what your impressions were of the debate, but for for me, I have to say... Um, Hillary did a nice job of not being shrill last night. She, she just got on the edge of it a couple of times. But I wonder what the American voters think, not the Democrat voters. When, you know, Donald Trump and the Republicans, when they are in the debates, um, they can preach to the choir if they want to, but I don't know why you would. The idea would be to convince the people that are on the fence um, who 
would uh, maybe come to your side why they should. And, and for me, in sales, anybody who's ever been in sales, you know that the rule is there's a difference between a prospect and a suspect. And you want to make sure you eliminate the suspects as quickly as possible, and you move on to the prospects and convince them that your product is something that they absolutely have to have. Last night, I'm not sure if anyone on that stage convinced a prospect that they were the right person. I don't know that. I think that Hillary was the front runner when she walked in there. She left there the front runner last night. Uh, the room loved uh, Bernie Sanders. They loved him. I was a little surprised by Chafee and Webb, a little bit surprised that they didn't come out swinging a little bit more, a little bit of wavering. They, they're both politically... Uh, astute. They both have been around before. They are newcomers to a presidential campaign, but not necessarily to other um, to to politics. So when we move as we move into um, the political season, we're more than a year away. Can Hillary Clinton overcome what she needs to? That's a big part of the question. Um, I was very fascinated to hear over and over again the same answers. Now, take out the applause, and I want to play some sound. Um, Hillary was asked about being a flip-flopper, and I think this part of the, the, one of the things that Anderson Cooper was able to do was pose some questions that appeared to be tough questions, uh, and whether or not he was going to lob up softballs, the criticism of him being a part of the Clinton Global Initiative, all of that aside, you know what you're going to get from CNN or from anybody else. You know, they, they say that some of the other networks are, Fox News is going to be in the tank for the Republicans, and all of it aside, when the questions are asked and hear how they're answered, listen to how Hillary talks about the accusation of flip-flopping. I think it's very telling of, of her... Um, and how she's going to handle the issues of when she's willing to say one thing to one audience and another thing to another. Here's what she said. Plenty of politicians evolve on issues, but even some Democrats believe you change your positions based on political expediency. You are against same-sex marriage. Now you're for it. You defended President Obama's immigration policies. Now you say they're too harsh. You supported his trade deal dozens of times. You even called it the gold standard. Now, suddenly, last week, you're against it. Will you say anything to get elected? Well, actually, I have been very consistent over the course of my entire life. I have always fought for the same values and principles, but like most human beings, including those of us who run for office, I do absorb new information. I do look at what's happening in the world. Secretary Clinton, though, with all due respect, the question is really about political expediency. Just uh, in July, New Hampshire, you told the crowd you, quote, take a backseat to no one when it comes to progressive values. Last month in Ohio, you said you plead guilty to, quote, being kind of moderate and center. Do you change your political identity based on who you're talking to? No. I think that, uh, like most people that I know, I have a range of views, but they are rooted in my values and my experience. Okay, a range of views. Uh, there is a difference. And knowing where someone stands, and let's, let's mirror some of the candidates. The, the front runner for the Democrats is Hillary Clinton. Right now, the front runner for the Republicans is Donald Trump. What makes Donald Trump popular with the voters so far, with the people that are answering the polls so far, is Donald Trump is doing the opposite of what you saw Hillary Clinton do. Donald Trump is saying something, it may seem like it's unpopular, and then when he's asked about it, he doubles down on that issue. And he says he's sticking to his, his guns. Now, 
Whether Donald Trump is going to hold on and become the Republican candidate, the difference here is here is somebody that has found a message and saying it to people, and then he's doubling down. He doesn't care what anyone else has to say. When he goes into another room, he doesn't change what he's saying about it. I don't know that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. I have a lot of disagreements with the way Donald Trump says some things that he says. But the fact of the matter is you can hear when people know when they're being lied to. The people that love Hillary Clinton are not going to stop loving her. There are people that are like that. If you like a certain person, you'll defend them. It, it's human nature. So people defend the ones they love. They, uh, they, they like Hillary. They say she's an outsider. The comment she made about being an outsider because she's a woman is ludicrous. But they're going to say that that's an, that's an honest opinion. They will defend the things that she says. But do you think that that answer convinced anyone else? You look at the young people that are not very fond of a Clinton in the White House. It's interesting, isn't it, that on the Republican side... Everybody is criticizing Jeb Bush and saying we don't want another Bush in the White House, that, that uh, the, there's been enough of the Bush family in the White House. And that's a big criticism that they don't want the same old uh, politicians back in the White House. There is a huge sentiment about that on the Democrat side. On the Republican side, Donald Trump is an outsider and he's made some people inside the Republican Party angry. Well, I guarantee you that the Democrats don't want a socialist on their t- leading their ticket. Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. Bernie Sanders is a self-affirmed socialist. Debbie Wasserman Schultz has been asked over and over again about the electability of Bernie Sanders and how Bernie Sanders is popular with a lot of voters. He is filling rooms. People love his message. Well, she doesn't want to answer the question because if he becomes the nominee, she's going to support him. She's going to need to support him. But you know that the Democratic Party does not want an outsider leading their ticket. So the same criticism, the same dysfunction that we see on one side where the media loves to prop up the dysfunction on the Republican side, there's no difference on the Democrat side. The ratings last night, CNN got out in front of the ratings last night and made sure that everybody knew we've got low expectations. We know that the Republicans had about 23 million viewers, and that was all because of the Donald Trump uh, freak show, they said. They didn't use the word freak show, but that's what they meant. Everybody wanted to see the Trump show. That's what they were there for. So this is not going to be the same. And they were right, less than half. Barely over 10 million homes watch the Democratic debate. A lot of people think it's a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee for the Democrats. I don't necessarily believe that's true, but that's what is being said. I want you to hear one more Hillary soundbite because the big issue, one of the big issues of the day is guns. We're watching more shootings. Um, I've mentioned before, I'm from Arizona. There was a shooting on a campus in northern Arizona, a very quiet northern Arizona University campus. And all the news went out last Friday about an on-campus shooting. It turned out to not be the same as we saw in Oregon or in some of these other campus shootings. So it died off nationally very quickly. But campus shootings, guns, all of these things have become the big topic of the day. So Hillary Clinton was speaking about this. I want you to listen to the enemy of the, the NRA being the enemy, but the idea of Hillary Clinton and the government and guns. Listen to this. Secretary Clinton, is Bernie Sanders tough enough on guns? No, not at all. I think that we have to look at the fact that we lose 90 people a day from gun violence. This has gone on too long, and it's time the entire country stood up against the NRA. The majority of our country supports background checks, and even the majority of gun owners do. What I can tell Secretary Clinton, that all the shouting in the world is not going to do what I would hope all of us want. 
and that is keep guns out of the hands of people who should not have those guns and end this horrible violence that we are seeing. Okay, so the idea is keep the the guns out of hands of people that shouldn't have them. But listen to the rhetoric again. It's easily answered. People in the room cheer. We should fight against the NRA. Why would you fight against an organization like the NRA? Look at the opposite of what's happened. The NRA doesn't get government funding. The NRA is a lobbying organization. The NRA is an organization of citizens that give their money to that group so that they can help fight for their rights. They lobby members of Congress. When uh, citizens were fighting, like myself, against government funding of Planned Parenthood, the Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, went crazy about how horrible it is that these organizations do great things. Well, let them be privately funded, and then people aren't going to complain as loudly. But when it comes to the issue of guns, let's just for one moment talk about this in a rational way. Background checks, straw buyers. There was just a lawsuit that happened where a couple of police officers won six million bucks against a gun store owner that was selling what they should have known was straw buyers, people going in and purchasing things for them. Uh, I've used the reference to alcohol in comparison to guns and drunk driving comparison to gun violence forever, and the, the analogy works perfectly. I have been armed most of my adult life. I've owned guns. I have a concealed carry permit. Um, in the state where I live, they've changed the laws. We have the least strict gun laws, as far as I can tell, in the entire nation, that if you can legally own a handgun in the state of Arizona, you can conceal it without a permit. And people, including myself, had concerns when that happened, that what about training and everything else? And it was pointed out to me, the criminals have no training. They put it in their pocket. They conceal it. They ignore all the laws. The law was changed in Arizona. Our crime rates have not gone up. We live in relative safety. I would much rather walk the streets of Phoenix or Tucson or Flagstaff, Arizona, any day of the week than the streets of Chicago or Detroit or Washington, D.C. No offense to any of those cities, but the crime rates and the violent crime rates and the shootings are much higher. It is the violence in the hearts of men. It's not the tool that they use. And reasonable people are not going to disobey the laws. It is unreasonable people that do. So why would we, in any instance, why would you think that if we change these laws, we are going to become safer? We should fight against the NRA. Why should every American fight against the NRA? They have a right to fight for what they believe in. Go lobby Congress yourself to get the laws changed. If you think you can undermine the Second Amendment and that's better for the country, then you should fight for that to happen. You have every right to. But it's never going to work. I could go tomorrow to a grocery store. I could go after the show today. I could go to a grocery store. I could bring a hand truck with me. I could buy 14 cases of beer, two uh, cases of whiskey, 15 bags of ice, and wheel them out of the grocery store. And you know what someone's going to say? Where's the party? If I went into a gun shop with a hand truck and I bought four or five cases of ammunition when I left, they'd follow me home and they want to know what war I'm starting and all the people that are going to die from those bullets. No one says we got to limit the amount of alcohol that guy buys. People are going to drink and drive and die. We don't want to make cars smaller so that the drunken driving deaths are smaller, but we want to reduce the number of rounds of ammunition you can put in a magazine. We are trying to cure a problem by looking at the ridiculous symptoms. A gun is a tool like a hammer. I've said before, I've been armed all of my adult life. I've never brandished a weapon on a human being, ever. Now, 
I've never wavered from confrontation. Why I love the industry I'm in is I'm a very opinionated person. I don't walk away from an argument. I'm not a fighter. I don't get in fist fights. I'm 48 years old. My days of rolling around in a parking lot are over. But I don't walk away from a confrontation. But I've never brandished my firearm at a human being. And I'm like most gun owners out there. I don't ever want to. So when people think that as a gun owner, I'm looking for trouble. No, I'm not. I own fire extinguishers, too. I'm not looking for a fire. I'm not hoping my kitchen catches on fire. But the funny thing is, when someone has a kitchen fire, what do they do? They buy fire extinguishers. What happens when your home gets burglarized? You put in a burglar alarm. What happens when you get carjacked or your wife or your daughter or your girlfriend gets robbed? You get self-defense training and you buy a gun. Why wait? Every American has a right to feel safe and protected. And instead of saying to reasonable people like me and to like most Americans, we're going to limit your access to a tool, we should be saying we are going to work a lot harder to make sure that unreasonable people can't get them. And as far as straw buyers go, and a straw buyer is someone that goes and buys a gun for someone that they know shouldn't have it. It's illegal. You know, the police department where I live They take underage people that are 18 years old and they send them into the stores to buy alcohol to make sure that the salespeople are checking IDs. And if somebody gets caught buying a minor alcohol, that person goes to jail. They arrest 7-Eleven and Circle K clerks that sell to minors without checking IDs. They don't say to adults, we're going to limit your access to alcohol because some of you are buying for bad people. All I'm saying is look at the problem reasonably. This debate last night is about rabble-rousing a group of people and trying to pander to and preach to the choir. It's all well and good. I Really, I understand that. But you're not going to win over the American voter. And I don't know how any of them, and I may be totally wrong, but my opinion is when you talk about guns that way, that's not a Republican and Democrat issue. Most reasonable Americans are, do not feel unsafe when someone else is armed. I'm going to take a quick break. We've got some more sound here, more question and answer, more problems and solutions. We're going to deal with them here in the first hour of the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead. We'll be back. Hi, it's Glenn Beck for realestateagentsitrust.com. We built a network of professional real estate agents who have created a need for your home. And they don't just list your home and then wait for buyers. They market your home and create a need and sell it fast and for top dollar. And they want to earn your business every day. Realestateagentsitrust.com. After one day, if you're not satisfied for any reason, they let you out of the contract. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com. That's realestateagentsitrust.com. All right, welcome back to the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead. Um, filling in for the boys today. We're talking, of course, about the debate. Here in the first hour, we'll talk about the debate from last night. And um, there are a couple of, th- there are two things. Let me, I'm going to go back just for a moment about the guns for just a moment. There are two things about the opposition to firearms that bother me. One is, and this is the biggest issue, is the anti-gun crowd makes the accusation that, People like myself 
are more concerned about owning guns than we are about human lives. And it's more than insulting. There, I promise you, um, there is nothing more horrifying to me than to hear about the shootings that we've heard about. Uh, and I, I'm sure I've mentioned the, the times I've been able to be on the network here um, about the day I was doing afternoon radio in, in Phoenix at the time when Sandy Hook happened in the morning. And we were all watching in the newsroom as the death toll began to climb. Uh, at, and then we found out that an entire classroom of these small children had been gunned down. And there were few things that have ever shaken me to the point where I didn't know what I was going to do that afternoon. I was asked on the plane to Dallas this week, uh, are you ever stumped? Have you ever gone on the air and not had anything to say and, and wondered what were you going to talk about? And I said, no. Uh, and then I said, once almost that day, I left the building and I reached out to everybody I knew. And one of the people I reached out to was Glenn. Beck, and asked, what do you possibly say about such human depravity? The idea that someone can just arbitrarily take a human life shocks me. No one hates to see those things more than I do or the people like me. So you may disagree with our desire to keep firearms but the accusation that we care less about human life is such a ridiculous accusation. It has no business in the conversation. And secondly, what bothers me is that you believe your solution is going to fix the problem. What's dangerous about the solution of limiting gun access is that it will do nothing to solve the problem. You will pat yourselves on the back. You will high five. You will act as if you have solved the issue and the issue will continue on. Uh, all the anecdotal evidence on both sides of the argument, I can point to Chicago and I can point to Washington, D.C. And, and the gun violence uh, averages and percentages in those cities when they have the most restrictive gun laws is an argument for me. And you can point to other issues as an argument for your side. But in the end, what fixes the problem? And none of this does. And what goes back to the debate we saw last night is answering the questions to the problems where America is. So all joking aside for just a moment, I thought last night was in, at times hysterically funny because for all of the retread conversations they say the Republicans continue to have, um, was there any diversity on that stage? Not just diversity in race. It was just a bunch of old white guys and an old white lady. I mean, it's what it was. But it's not just a diversity in race. It's a diversity in ideas. It's, it's a switch from anything we have seen before. Our government is growing. We, we led the world. For decades, we've led the world in, in so many categories. We're still the world's superpower, but we're becoming more like the nations we lead instead of them becoming more like us. We're going to their health care systems. We're going to their economic systems. We're going to a lot of the same laws. We have Supreme Court justices that are saying we should be looking at foreign law when making our own and when interpreting our own law. If that doesn't scare you from a Supreme Court justice, I don't know what does. And if it doesn't scare you, it's because you don't know the separation of powers and what the mandate is and what the Supreme Court is supposed to do in the judicial branch. Their job is to interpret whether or not the laws made by Congress and signed by the president 
fit within the confines of our Constitution. And when a member of the Supreme Court says we should be looking at other nations' laws when interpreting our laws, that should scare us. But from the debate last night, did you learn anything? I didn't. I mean, I I got to see what Lincoln Chafee looks like because I had no idea what the guy looked like. But did Hillary give you any fresh ideas? Did it not sound like more of the same, that if there's a problem, it's because we don't have enough money, uh, we're going to punish rich people? Her solution on the economy was she wants more money for education and more money for things to give people an opportunity to live up to their God-given potential. Well, I would say, and I hope this happens, because the next Republican debate is, I believe, November 10th, um, according to Fox Business. And that debate is going to focus on the economy. And if the Republicans don't take this as an opportunity to show the opposite to the idea you heard from Hillary Clinton, then they have no business winning an election. No business winning. When Hillary Clinton says the federal government needs to confiscate the wealth from the successful people so that we can put into programs to give people a chance to become successful so that we can confiscate their wealth, Someone needs to stand up and say the exact opposite is the truth. What we need to do is get the government out of the way. Reduce regulation. Reduce taxation. The corporate tax in America is the highest in the world. That's why companies are leaving. Every human being does the same thing. I, at least I believe they do. If you live in a, ma- if you live in a major metropolitan area, Metropolitan area, and there's different sales taxes in different cities. If you have a city that's got a very high sales tax, and you go to buy an automobile, or you're going to buy brand new appliances for your home, you're going to make a major purchase, thousands of dollars. So you go to a, a dealership, you go to a Ford dealership in one city, and you see a vehicle that's the same price as it is in the other city. Where are you going to buy it? I'm going to buy it in the city where I'm going to pay a few thousand dollars or a few hundred dollars less than the sales taxes. Why would I shop at a Home Depot or a Lowe's or at any other store for appliances and buy it in one city where the sales tax rate is 10% when four miles away, the same store with the same appliances has the same thing at a 6% tax rate? And if you can shop online and buy something there without paying the sales taxes, people are going to do that. You do it in your own home. You go to the airport, you shop in the duty-free shop. Well, you're no different than than corporate America. You're no different than the evil corporate barons that they say are hiding their money in places overseas. Yours just doesn't count as much because it's not as much money. Well, it doesn't count until it's your money. You see, the difference between a conservative principle and progressive or whatever Hillary is today is that a conservative believes in success on your own two feet and failure on your own two feet. You have an opportunity. Pass or fail. The choice is yours. You know, I, I am I'm never running for office because I don't want anybody looking into my background. I don't want to have to answer any of those questions. But I am the worst nightmare for the progressives of today. I was raised in a family of of Teamsters and and working-class Democrats. And every one of them became a conservative when they got older. 
I have a high school diploma. I worked my way through the trades as an electrician and became a contractor and owned my own business. And I saw the difference between standing on my own two feet and gaining wages based on my hard work versus standing behind someone else and having them fight for me and getting me something that I may not or may or may not deserve, but just because I show up, I have gotten. And I wonder with the ideas we saw last night, how many people were convinced that having um, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden lead us in the White House is the right direction to go. And the last thing I'm going to point out about this debate last night is I don't think it was brought up. I don't think it was brought up. But it's something we need to remember. This fiscal year just ended. The fiscal year that just ended, the Treasury took in more tax dollars, even adjusted for inflation, than it's ever taken in before. America's income problem is not an income problem. America's got a spending problem. We have more money in the Treasury than we've ever had before, and we're still running at a half a trillion dollars in deficits. And everybody on that stage last night said to you that the answer to every problem we have in America is more money and more government programs. And if America wants that, then America is going to get it. But I don't see how anybody's going to believe it. Quick break. We're going to take uh, a few more things coming up here in a minute or two. Pat and Stu is the name of the show. My name is Mike Broomhead. I'll be back. All right, we're back. It's the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead. In for the guys. By the way, social media, if you're a big social media user, you can follow me on Twitter, at Broomhead Show. Um, would love to interact with you, uh, at Broomhead Show on Twitter, or Mike Broomhead on Instagram. All one word, no underscore, none of that stuff, if you want to follow us around. Um, a couple of more things about the debate. Hillary Clinton was talking about her, her differences with the president, how she's different from the president. So uh, a couple of more sound bites from last night. And just to discuss as we watch uh, the Democrats for the first time in a debate. So listen to Hillary uh, describe herself versus the president. Secretary Clinton, how would you not be a third term of President Obama? Well, I think that's pretty obvious. Um... I think being the first woman president would be quite a change from the presidents we've had up until this point, including uh, President Obama. Is there a policy difference? Well, there's a lot that I uh, would like to do to build on the successes of President Obama, but also, as I'm laying out, to go beyond. And that's in my economic plans, how I would deal with the prescription drug companies, how I would deal with college, how I would deal with a full range of issues that I've been talking about throughout this campaign to go further. Now, far be it for me to be critical, but, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper could have followed up with, like what? How about, like what? She didn't say anything. She alluded to the fact that she's different from the president because she's a woman and he's a man. I would love to see a woman president. To be honest with you, I think that would be terrific if she was the right person for the job. The idea that America is so um, close-minded that we won't elect somebody different is such an old, tired argument. It's ridiculous. 
How many times have any of you heard me say that in the years that followed 9-11, the American people elected a man with the middle name Hussein as president of the United States? We are diverse in mind. We will elect somebody, and it doesn't matter what color skin they have or what their gender is. Get over it. When a woman is the right person to lead America, America will elect that woman to be president of the United States. So for her to figure out the first chance she could to point out the fact that she's a woman, okay. But when pushed a little further about her policies, she wasn't specific about any of them, how she would deal with the pharmaceutical companies, college. You can't, it said nothing to anyone. But at least now we know she's different from the president and there's some policy change. She wants to build on the president's successes. Okay. There are still Americans that believe there's been some success from this president. I don't. But I didn't have any expectations that there would be. But some of them do. And finally, I think it's only fair to let you hear. I think this may have been the only time we heard the voice of, of anybody else. I know maybe Jim Webb and Lincoln Chafee got to speak once or twice. But you're going to hear uh, this is Lincoln Chafee talking about his defense of a vote he cast they were very critical of. And so uh, the, the answer to this question to me, I think, was the most shocking answer of the night. Listen to this. Governor Chafee, you've attacked Secretary Clinton for being too close to Wall Street banks. In 1999, you voted for the very bill that made banks bigger. Uh, the Glass-Steagall was my very first vote. I just arrived. My dad had died in office. I was appointed to the office. It was my are very you saying, first vote. Are you saying you didn't know what you were voting for? I just arrived the Senate. Uh, I think we'd get some takeovers. That was one. It was my very first vote, and it was 95 92-5. It was the, the reconciliation. With, with all due respect, though, sir, say, what does that say about you that you're casting a vote for something you weren't really sure about? I think you're being a little rough. I just arrived at the United States Senate. I'd been mayor of my city. My dad had died. I'd been appointed by the governor. It was the first vote, and it was 90-5 to five because it was a conference report. Okay. I just arrived. Okay. So um, don't expect big things from Lincoln Chafee. He's elected president until probably... Six, seven months after he's been in office, because after he gets there, he's going to need a few days to catch up on what's going on in the world. You mean to tell me that you didn't know what that was? We all knew what it was. And it's in the Senate, in the House, it's different. In the Senate, the big thing about the United States Senate is they are known for the slow grind there in the Senate. What's the old phrase? Um, was it Jefferson that said that the Senate is the, uh, the saucer that cools the tea, I believe was the phrase? That was the idea of the United States Senate, was it was going to be open for debate. It wasn't going to be a bill jammed through, voted on quickly. There was going to be a lot of conversations. There were going to be a lot of amendments brought forth, which was the big criticism when Harry Reid invoked the nuclear option and they didn't have to have the 60 votes, there's a lot more. There's a lot more that goes deeper into some of the things that have happened. But for him to say he had no idea what he was voting for, you can abstain. I mean, you can not vote. You can say, I'm not prepared. But what a way. How do you were you either so embarrassed by the vote now or you knew that it was going to be so ugly for you to say you were in favor of it? that the best option was the embarrassment of saying that you had no idea what you were voting for. So the last, the, the last thing about the debate last night, and then we'll move on, is Joe Biden. Is, is uh, Uncle Joe going to jump into the race? 
And, and that's, that's the big question. Did Hillary Clinton do well enough last night? Was she palatable enough to the American people? Not to the Democrat voters, because there are, again, there's a, a large group of people that will vote D no matter what, just like there's a lot of people that vote R no matter what. It's that huge group of undecided voters who maybe registered one party or the other, but have crossed party lines with votes locally and at the national level. Is Joe Biden, did he see enough from Hillary to say, I'm going to stay out? We have a strong enough candidate. One thing you have to give the Democrats credit for is they want to win. As a team, if one of them gets there, they've won. They said it over and over again last night about the Republicans. And, and when uh, Bernie Sanders said, we've heard enough about the emails, all of those things when they were said, everybody cheered for. This is all about making sure that not a Republican gets elected. So that's one area where they have a team atmosphere. Does Joe Biden see in Hillary Clinton last night someone that can win the White House? Because if he did, then he may sit, out, sit it out. That's going to be the major question moving forward. Did Joe Biden see that? I find it interesting that the party that whose line it is they don't like the they don't like big banks. We just heard there they they hate the big banks. They don't like the big pharmaceutical companies. They call those monopolies as well. They don't like um, they they hate Walmart. They hate corporate America and these big corporations that are way too big to fail. They say, and they don't want these big. Um, big private companies dictating things like Walmart when it goes into an area and they say that it now dictates prices and runs small businesses out of business and they need to take them down because they're way too big and oppressive. The same people that want to build a government exactly like that. I, it's, I think it is hysterically funny that we see the people that will say, instead of turning over the education of our children to the individual states, instead of saying, um, in Arizona or in Texas or in Connecticut, wherever you are, you should be able to decipher how to educate your own children better than we can in Washington, D.C. That we're not going to collect money from all of the states, take our cut out of it, attach a bunch of regulations and rules to it, and then send part of it back to you. And I just described every government program that exists. We are going to make sure that we turn the states loose. So if um, Mississippi wants to spend more money on roads than they do on education, that's up to Mississippi. But think about where you live. Are you more effective in where you are of knowing what needs to be done? Or do you think someone up higher needs to be telling you what to do? And it's just, I find it odd. They don't like big business. They don't like corporate America. They don't like corporations and the power and the money and the corruption that it brings. And yet they all want to build a government that does exactly the same thing. It's too big. It's too powerful. It's too corrupt. There was, an, here's the one analogy, and I'll get off my soapbox with it. There is another story of the Bureau of Land Management, this time out of the state of Texas, Somebody up near the border with Oklahoma, fighting the Bureau of Land Management, been on this land, got a deed for the land for generations. Bureau of Land Management says he's got to get out of there, that there's a 600-acre piece of his land that belongs to the Bureau of Land Management, that the state of Texas should have never issued a deed to this guy, that his deed is null and void, and they want that land. Oh, and by the way, his house on that 600-acre piece. So he's fighting the Bureau of Land Management. It's a land grab. Well, good luck. Good luck. 
They've just decided this is what they're going to do. Where I live, the forest fires are so horrible, we can't get to the forest fires. Can't get to the forest fires because the rules dictated by the federal government that you can't thin the forests because of the animals and the birds that live in the trees, you're going to ruin their habitat. So when a forest fire starts, you either literally have to start a burn to catch up to it, or you have to wait until it burns to you because you can't get the fire equipment in. Where we are, there's uh, uh, the Navajo Reservation and the Apache Reservation, and there are, there's Indian land around us where they don't have to abide by federal regulations. When these forest fires happen, you can watch from overhead photos how the fires go right around the Native American lands because they put in fire trails, they thin the forest, the animals flourish, and when fires happen, they can get in and fight the fires. It's all practical. It's all easy. People see that it's the right thing to do, but by the time it goes through the government, it gets to be such a nightmare because of the how big and oppressive the red tape and the corruption. Two words, Veterans Administration. There's not an American on either side of the political argument that believes that the VA is doing what it should for the veterans. Republicans and Democrats and independents all think we should be doing a better job and doing things differently for the veterans in this country. One person's been fired since the VA scandal, and they've been given permission to fire people. One person's lost their job. Why? Bureaucracy, red tape, corruption, all the things that every member of that debate last night said they hate about corporate America. And yet, their answer is a bigger government that does exactly the same thing to the American people. I just, I just disagree in principle. There you have it. It's a debate roundup. We've got a lot more that's going to happen. And I, I, we're going to get off the debate. You've suffered through it with me. You heard the audio. So we'll move on to bigger, better, and more funny things here in a few minutes. It's the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead. We'll be back. We've, uh, I, I just want to touch on something before we end this hour. Um, story today, a Russian jet intercepted an American aircraft, I believe over Syria. And uh, they said they did it for identification purposes because they can't be done by radar or by radio. So they had to get a closer look. Uh, we have heard in recent days about interaction between American aircraft and, if you've not been paying attention to this, uh, for any of you that have ever been in the military, this is something that you may find either interesting, funny, or so sad you want to punch a hole in something. Um, the Americans have been told from the White House, the American military, that all aircraft, uh, fighter aircraft, and even the drones, even the drone operators have been told, if you come within 20 nautical miles of a Russian aircraft, change direction. Now, the White House said they wanted to sit down with the Russians and come up with an agreement because we're going to be sharing airspace over Syria because, you know, we're both going after ISIS. Um, well, kind of. And, and so they wanted us to come up with an agreement that how we would share airspace. And the Russians said, we aren't going to sit down with you about anything. 
So the Americans said, well, until we come up with a safety agreement and how we can safely share airspace, just avoid Russian aircraft. So why would Vladimir Putin or anybody else sit down with the Americans when they don't have to? Uh, the bully walks into the room, so you leave the room. And I don't know how there's an American member of the military or anybody that's ever been in the military that looks at that and says, is that what the world superpower does? You know, the idea for me is we want to sit down with the Russians and we want to come up with an agreement. And if the Russians say no, then we say to the Russians, here's the deal. You come within 20 nautical miles of an American aircraft, drone or otherwise, we're going to take it as a threat. And we are not saying we're going to shoot you down, but we will arm the guns and we will be ready to engage. So don't come within 20 nautical miles of an American aircraft. And if you do, you better change directions. Unless we have an agreement of how we're going to share airspace, we're going to assume you're threatening. That's not what we did. By the way, let's catch you up if you've not heard of how it was handled from the U.N. until the airstrikes happened in Syria. Um, John Kerry had been speaking with their defense minister. And they never said anything about airstrikes in Syria. Vladimir Putin met for, I think, 90 minutes with the president of the United States. Never said anything about airstrikes in Syria. As a matter of fact, um, they met for 90 minutes and then Vladimir Putin went to the floor for his speech at the U.N. and demanded that the U.S. stop airstrikes in Syria. One hour before they began airstrikes in Syria, a Russian general showed up at the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, knocked on the door, and told the people at the embassy, we are commencing airstrikes in Syria in one hour. You have one hour to get American assets out. That's how America was treated by the Russians. I don't know how anybody calls it leadership, I don't think we should be uh, going to war, but I certainly don't think we should be pushed around by anybody. So if you're a veteran or you're in the military now, does that feel like leadership to you? Because it doesn't to me. We are now changing directions. So they are now in Syria. The Russians are in Syria and they are bombing the Syrian rebels that were trained by the CIA, our CIA. These are American trained people. We train them to fight Bashar Assad, who has gassed his own people, barrel bombing his own people, millions of refugees in countries around the world, hundreds of thousands dead, hundreds of thousands in prisons. And we're training the rebels. How have we responded since the airstrikes happened? Because they didn't bomb ISIS. The first airstrikes were against the rebels who were against Bashar Assad. They're now going to commit ground troops. The Iranian Republican Guard committing ground troops in Syria. Now, they all say to fight ISIS, but they are fighting the people that are against Bashar Assad. And what was our response? I think two days ago, we dropped some ammunition. I think we dropped a couple of tons of bullets to the Syrian rebels. I, I just don't know what message, message we're sending. We're not sending a good message. We are watching the annihilation of people in a region of the world by the way, when the Iranians trust, uh, test fired the ICBMs this week, the intercontinental ballistic missiles that are capable of housing a nuclear warhead, um, and they move one step closer, they, they hopscotch over Iraq into Syria, they get one step closer to Israel, and it's still in their constitution to wipe out Israel. 
I just want you to keep that in mind when we look at worldwide leadership and diplomacy. It's not about being a neocon. It's not about spreading democracy. It's about making sure that our children don't have to fight a fight that we could have stopped a long time ago. Got another hour coming up again at Broomhead Show on Twitter is where you can follow me. Pat and Stu is the show. My name is Mike Broomhead. It's thrilling to be here. I'll be back for one more hour of fun. Make sure you stick around. You're going to love what's next. Show. My name is Mike Broomhead, in from Phoenix. So thanks for uh, allowing me to sit in, doing the doing the job of two men, as they were in for uh, for Glenn earlier. Here's the deal: we, uh, we're getting really racist racism. Um, <sighs> University of Missouri, where's Jeffy when you need him? Uh, University of Missouri implements mandatory diversity training um, and inclusion training. I love these classes. Have you ever sat through one of these? Have you ever seen some of the uh, paperwork and diversity inclusiveness, it, it, and it's very uncomfortable. Um, I, for me, I've got to tell you, being a middle-aged white guy, this is not exactly, uh, you can't be comfortable in this class. You're either there because you feel guilty or you've been convicted of something and you've been forced to go to the class. It's usually one of the two. Um, but the University of Missouri said it will implement a mandatory diversity and inclusion training for all faculty, staff, and students in the wake of accusations of widespread racism on campus. They are telling students, I believe it's incoming freshmen, that you're going to go through the training before you can attend classes at the university. Now, I want you to think about this. College campuses across America have been fighting for the right to be diverse and different and opinionated and offensive for decades. I mean, in the 1960s, they were famous for it. It was, you were... There was violence on campus, if you disagree. There were groups that would fight with each other over disagreements. There's offensiveness. Uh, there was, a, well, there was a protest in Texas. I, I, I wanted to talk about this protest in Texas, but I couldn't figure out a way to say it on the air. Um, and and it, it, to be honest with you, it, it's not, uh, not appropriate. But in Texas, there is uh, um, a movement where students with concealed carry permits, I believe it's the University of Texas at Austin, but one of the universities in Texas is allowing students with concealed carry permits to carry guns on campus in light of the campus shootings that have happened. And in response, there's a bunch of students that don't feel safe with other students being armed or faculty being armed. So they are using um, as, as a, a protest, they're going to carry other things um, and they're, they're going to carry marital aids are such a weird way of saying it. Uh, toys, how's that? Uh, they're going to carry those on campus, and they say they have as much chance of fighting off somebody with a gun with one of those as they do with a gun. And I, I'm pretty sure it's because they've never held a gun. And, and so um, I look at these things, I think, okay, this is what college campuses do. 
They're offensive. They, they understand that uh, some things that they do when they're young and in college and, and they're, they're trying to have, be open-minded. So college students say silly things sometimes or they do things that 10 years later they say, can you believe we did that? But it's all part of this freedom of expression you have in the college experience. But now Missouri is saying not so fast. The edict from the chancellor whose name is Bowden Lofton, was uh, prompted partly from an incident that happened in October, uh, early October when an intoxicated person shouted racist accusations and used the N-word at a group of students called the Legion of Black Collegians. Uh, student government president Peyton, uh, Peyton had reported that he was called a racial slur by a man in a passing truck. I've been called a racial slur by a lot of people. I don't know what diverse. I, I, I'll be honest. I don't know what diversity training is. I have no idea what diversity training is. I don't understand it. I don't understand what an anti-bullying campaign is. I don't get any of it. I make fun of it because it's ridiculous. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, I've said this with all sincerity. People think I'm joking, but I'm not. My last name really is Broomhead. I've had it my whole life. If you don't think I learned to fight and take a joke when I was very young, then you aren't paying attention. Get over it. People have been making fun of me my whole life. And you at some point either need to roll with it or you learn to stand up for yourself or both. Are there cases where people get out of hand with bullies? Absolutely. How often do we see people standing up to bullies? Um, This is nonsense. It takes time away from educating people. We're creating the citizens we want as opposed to creating critical thinkers. Um, The protest on campus, protesters chanted, no justice, no peace. White silence is violence. White silence is... Now, that's racist. I have... I could go down the entire road on racism and the civil rights movement in America and... White silence is violence. Um, Some carried signs which read, I am not here to assimilate. Okay. What is all that? So you want everyone else, assimilation has become more like everybody else. So what you want is the people that aren't like you to become like you, but you hold a sign that says, I'm not going to assimilate. White silence is violence. How is silence violence? Uh, Thomas Jefferson is racist. Okay. Thomas Jefferson is dead. I mean, you may may think he was racist. He's dead. So now I want to ask, honestly... Um, we hate racism, or at least I do. I think, I think any of those isms are ridiculous. Homophobia, I, I, none of it. I, I have no use for any of it. Never have. Um, and I watch what goes on in public schools, and this is going to be my serious moment on this ridiculous topic. Watching kids in extracurricular activities solves all of these problems. You want to solve a problem, you want to make sure that your child grows up well-adjusted. You want your child to be able to work with people, learn to share. 
not judge people based on how they look or how much money they have or their skin color or their gender. Get them involved in sports. Get them in, in, in a team activity. It doesn't have to be a sport. Get them involved in something on a team. Force them to work with other kids. Get them involved with a coach that you may not like where they're going to have to listen to somebody else, tell them what to do. Make them run laps and do push-ups. Get mad at them and yell at them. Let another adult beside you yell at them. Monitor what's happening. I'm not saying you go play, have, you know, play for one of these coaches that's uh, going to win a world championship and reliving their youth through the eyes of an eight-year-old. That's how we create young, adjusted people. You know, in public schools where funding is down, they cut sports. You want to get rid of racism? Force some kid that's using the N-word into a football locker room and make them play a season of football. Force them onto the wrestling team or the basketball team or the baseball team. You take some girl and put her on the soccer team or the basketball team or the softball team. You want to get rid of the isms? You force them into a situation of discomfort where they're forced to be friends with people outside of their clique and they're forced to listen to other people and be told what to do. And not only that, now you've got to be around a bunch of people that you wouldn't normally hang out with and figure out how you're going to achieve a common goal together. Try that. I guarantee you if this were true, and I don't believe it, Missouri, I don't believe it. I don't believe that there's widespread racism on your campus. I believe there are a few people that are a little bit too thin-skinned. I don't like the N-word. I don't use the N-word. I won't use it. Not in a joke, not in private conversation. I don't like the word. Yeah, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because there's other words I will use, but I won't use that one. And it isn't because it's impolite. I won't use it in a private moment with a close friend. I won't use it. But we are way too thin-skinned. You take these people and you let them learn how to work with somebody they would never otherwise hang around with and achieve a common goal. That's called respect. And if this were happening at Missouri, I guarantee you it's not happening in the locker room. I guarantee you that their baseball team and their football team and their soccer team doesn't have this issue. Because when you walk into that setting, the first thing the coach is going to do is take his clipboard, he's going to throw it down on the floor, and he's going to tell the team, I don't care what your problem is. Leave it outside this locker room. In here, we've got a goal. It's to win football games. Well, that's life. If you're the boss of a major company, you don't care. you got a job to do. I don't care what your isms are. I don't care what your political ideology is. I don't care what your sports affiliations are. Leave all that stuff outside of your cubicle. When you come here, you come here to do one job, and that's to make this company successful. And you learn those things. We learn them. I've got grandkids now. I wish I had a picture. I wish we could put up pictures of my grandkids. That would do my heart well. I should, have met, I should have given them pictures. They put them up here now just so I could get my kid. They're, they're the cutest kids in the world. A four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Not one ism in these kids. Nothing. They cousins like brothers, and they love each other, and they love other kids, and it doesn't matter what race they are or gender they are. They run on the playground. They all play together. Some of the other parents or grandparents show up in BMWs, and some of them show up in a 78 Pontiac. Nobody cares. These kids just love to hang out. They play together on the swing sets, and they have a good time. They're going to learn it. 
They're going to learn about racism. They're going to learn about the disparity in economics and the wage gap and the gender problem and the war against women and homophobia. They're going to learn it all. What will they do with it? So we can look at this. This uh, It's uh, faculty diversity and inclusion training will begin immediately, they announced. Create awareness and address conscious and unconscious discrimination toward each other and our students. Discrimination on the part of whites, in other words. It's not all about race. I know this offends people when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You wouldn't take a black athlete, put him on a professional sports team. I'll give you an example. I I love being from Arizona, and I'm a huge Arizona Cardinals fan. We are having a phenomenal year. And the face of our franchise is Larry Fitzgerald, and he is having a renaissance of his career. Larry Fitzgerald is having almost like a, a breakout year, and he is one of the most experienced wide receivers in the NFL. And he is a great man. He gives, you know, he seasons over, he flies over with the troops in Afghanistan, and he gives in our community, and he's just a great leader on and off the field. Nobody would have ever said to Larry Fitzgerald, Larry, you only have to learn 80% of the playbook. Because you're black, Larry. It's affirmative action. The white receivers, they're going to have to learn 100% of the playbook, but if you learn 80%, you're going to make the team. It's stupid. So to tell a race of people that we're going to make it easier for you because you're not able to do what the white people do, that's racist. I guarantee you there's not racism in the locker rooms that you see. There's plenty of problems in the locker rooms. We've heard about them. They become very public. But Missouri has now got a campus-wide diversity and inclusion training. Cities across this country are passing uh, anti-discrimination legislation. There is a city in my home state that now is, is contemplating uh, this stuff. I, I, I've got, I can tell you how ridiculous the laws are without supporting them, but also saying that the idea of, of not hiring somebody because of their sexual orientation is a ridiculous thing. Now, you want to tell me that a church should have to hire somebody based on, that's ridiculous too. But college campuses, and they're doing this on high school campuses, we, we can't teach our children to read. You know, they passed a law, I hate always going back to my home state, but I, I can tell you that I do this every day at home. We have a law in our state now that kids in third grade can't go on to the fourth grade until they can read at a third grade level. I thought was mortified that we had to have that kind of a law. That, to me, was called passing or failing, I thought. I didn't think you could go on to any grade until you could pass the grade. Third graders can't go on to fourth grade until they can read at a third grade level. Well, there were so many kids that couldn't read at a third grade level, they postponed enforcing the law. And they moved these kids on to fourth grade and gave them remedial training. Why aren't we focusing on that? If we teach kids to read and to write, teach them accurate history... Science, math, you know, give them the basics. We create critical thinkers. They'll figure the rest of this stuff out. When you have a college student, you go on a college campus, and they can't tell you how many members of the Supreme Court there are. 
They couldn't tell you the three branches of government and what each one does. Just that, that easily. What are the three branches of government and what does each one do? And they're in college. But they can tell you about diversity, training, and inclusiveness. You tell me what we're teaching kids. <sighs> really, really, really racist racism. We're, we're awful people. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and feel guilty. Uh, we'll talk about the Middle East in a few minutes. We've got a lot more coming up here in the final hour of the show. Again, follow me at Broomhead Show on Twitter if you'd like to be a part of the social media army that I've got assembled. Uh, it's the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead. We'll be back. trying to make me cry. I told them the boys make me cry whenever I see them. So there, that's my, those are the two grandsons right there, Thomas and Grayson. Thanks for being here. It's the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead in uh, for the boys today. And thanks for being here. Um, the Middle East, we are, I, I alluded to it earlier on what's happening in the Middle East and how America should be involved and concerned on every level. Um, and and I, we weigh these things very carefully. Um, we shouldn't be the world's police force. I agree with that. But there's some responsibility that comes with being the world's superpower. And uh, when you create a vacuum like we did by leaving Iraq in the way we did, and I've got some very personal feelings about what happened there, um, you create a vacuum. And when that vacuum is created, it's going to be filled. And we've seen what happened. Um, a year ago, the president called ISIS the JV squad. And now we've seen what they've become. Um, look what's happening in Syria. We know a couple of years ago, and I'm, I'm getting a lot of you on social media are talking to me about the rebels in Syria and how it's a difficult problem. There's no doubt this is a very difficult problem. But does anybody believe that the solution to what's happening in Syria is the Russians and the Iranians? And if you do, uh, you're sadly mistaken. In the Middle East now, the violence between the Palestinians and the Jews in Israel is, is, is growing. It's becoming more and more violent there um, in recent days. There's a couple of things. Three Israelis were killed, two dozen injured in a series of Palestinian attacks on Tuesday. Um, the Israeli officials cordoned off uh, Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem and a decision by the security cabinet to place soldiers in the city center to support the police amid rising bloodshed and unrest. Um, that is our greatest ally in the region is Israel. We are Israel as a nation. We are Israel's best friend and American support for Israel should always be solid. The, the world should know that picking on Israel or picking a fight with Israel is picking a fight with us. Um, I believe it's a part of who we are in Tuesday's attack. Palestinians use knives, a car, a gun and a meat cleaver to kill and injure Jewish Israelis. Benjamin Netanyahu told the Israeli parliament, Israel will settle the score with the murderers and those who help them. We will cut the hands of whoever tries to hurt us. The Palestinian leader and former peace negotiator blamed the Israelis for the escalation. He asserted that the Israel's 48-year military occupation of the West Bank has spread a culture of hate and racism that justifies atrocities, including collective punishment and cold-blooded executions. Now, let's, 
use this, let me use this as a teachable moment for all of us. A ceasefire doesn't mean peace. We understand how long this has been going on. There, we don't have enough time to try to bring all of this together. We can go, I, we can go back six months. We have made a deal with the Iranians. We led the negotiations in a deal with the Iranians. And for all of what Iran has been saying about America while we were negotiating, that we should have gotten up and walked away from the table. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it in a business deal. You wouldn't do it at a restaurant. You wouldn't eat at a restaurant if somebody spoke to you. You wouldn't cut any kind of a deal with somebody that said they felt about you the way Iran continued to talk about America in that deal. We cut a deal with the Iranians. Since we cut the deal with the Iranians and we decided that this was going to be a new day in relation with the Iranians, since we've led that agreement, here's what's happened. They've tested ICBMs, test-fired intercontinental ballistic missiles. They're going to send ground troops into Syria. They've convicted a Washington Post reporter of crimes in what they called a trial that was done in private. Oh, and by the way, their constitution still calls for the annihilation of Israel. Does anybody believe that by allowing the Iranians a better economy, by lifting sanctions, giving them back more money, which in turn becomes power, is going to lessen the severity of what they're doing, of Hezbollah, of all of the funding and the training and the arming of those that are going into Israel? Um, the tunnels that are being dug into Israel, the, the tunnels that are being, what are they being used for? Why is it that, that Jewish Israelis have bomb shelters as a part of their homes, as everyday life, that there are bomb shelters? That it's not odd for a complete stranger to take refuge in your bomb shelter because they're either walking or driving by when, when the bombings and the explosions happen. Now, Apparently, I'm, I'm only giving you this American point of view that the Palestinians have a completely different view. But look at what's happening. In the most serious attack on Tuesday, two Palestinian assailants boarded a bus in the Jerusalem neighborhood and began shooting and stabbing passengers. Medics and police reported that two Israelis were killed and 16 were wounded, several of them very seriously. So when we are not a part of saying this will not be tolerated, this is what happens. It's human. It really is. I keep saying human nature, but it, it happens in our homes. It happens in our families. It happens in our communities. And when you get serious about it, if there is a um, uh, if there was an uprising at one time, um, Phoenix, Arizona was number one in the country in auto theft. This was 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Now they're not even in the top 50 because they said it's not going to be tolerated. And they dedicated resources to letting the auto thieves know that if you do that here, we're going to catch you. And when we catch you, we're going to punish you. And we're going to make it not worth your while to steal vehicles in this city, which in a span of less than 15 years, they've gone from being number one in the country to not even being in the top 50. In your own home, if you're a parent that says... Um, don't make me come up there. 
If you're a parent that says, don't do that 15 times before you get out of your chair, your children know when that don't make me come up there is the last one you're going to say before you come up there. People understand. I, I just believe they see us as weak. I think we are seen as a weak nation right now, that our president wants no part of a conflict with anyone. He recently said of Vladimir Putin uh, when, on 60 Minutes when he was questioned about his leadership, he said that what Vladimir Putin is doing right now is desperation, that he is going to cripple his economy by doing what he's doing. And that's not a way to lead a nation by crippling your economy by committing acts of war in Syria. But when asked about the um, rules of engagement with aircraft, and why are you going to go in the other direction from Russian aircraft? Why don't you do something about this? He said, what do you want? You want us to go to war with Russia? Well, which is it? Are they a weak nation whose economy is about to fall apart because they are committing acts of war in Russia and they have no chance and no leadership and no strength? Therefore, we're going to ignore them or we're going to run from them when their planes get within 20 nautical miles of us because we um, are afraid of them. It's one or the other. Either you don't want war with them or they're no threat to us. But they use both excuses in the span of a week or two. But inside of Israel now, the Israeli people are saying, we will defend ourselves. The Saudis and the Israelis are in agreement about how bad the Iranian agreement is. When was the last time the Saudis and the, and the, and the Israelis were on the same side? It, it's, it's a sad time to watch what's happening in Israel. I have friends that are in Israel right now. And they're sending back some amazing pictures of, of Israel. And we pray for their safety. They're there as tourists. They're there on a business trip. But you look at Israeli, Israeli children, Palestinian children too, but you look at Israeli children and you look at, at, at people that are trying to avoid violence and nations in the region whose constitutions spell out for the call for the annihilation of Israel. We are their friend. We have been. We are their friend. But what kind of a friend are we being right now? How long are we going to stand for our friends being treated like that? The people we've trained in Syria are being bombed by the Russians and the Iranians. Our friends in Israel are being killed in the streets by meat cleavers, knives, cars, and guns. And we sit idly by, and we say the world's a, a much safer place than it's ever been. I, I just never imagined I'd see it in my lifetime. Never imagined I would see it in my lifetime. But that's what we have for leadership. The next president of the United States has got quite a challenge. All right, we've got more coming up here. We have the final half hour of the show right around the corner. My name is Mike Broomhead. It's the Pat and Stu Show. We'll be back. Welcome back. 
It's the Pat and Stu Show. My name is Mike Broomhead. And now for something completely ridiculous. Um, this, uh, out of the state of New York, city of Manhattan, the Big Apple. Uh, most of you have heard this story's gone viral. Um, she sued her nephew. He's 12 now. He was 8 when this happened. Uh, here's how it went. Uh, there she is. This, this, uh, this, uh, she loves her nephew, by the way. She said she loves him very much. But uh, he needed to be sued for 127000 because that's how you teach an 8-year-old lesson is, is you punish him for $127,000. Um, she was visiting her nephew, who loved her very, very much. And she, when she showed up, he was on his brand-new bicycle. He'd gotten a new bike and uh, saw her coming. I think her name was Jennifer, and, and, and said, uh, Hey, Aunt Jenny, I love you. And she said, The next thing I knew... He was flying at me, and he jumped up for a big hug, and uh, she fell, and when she fell, she said she hurt her wrist. She said, I didn't want to say anything at the time because it was his birthday, and I didn't want to ruin his birthday, you know, with by calling my lawyer. So I waited, and, and so after that, she said, my wrist really bothered me, and I live on the third floor, and it's a walk-up, and it's... If, if any of you have ever been around, it's difficult to have a third floor walk up in Manhattan. And, and to add to the level of pain that this woman has suffered through, one of the examples she gave in court was, I went to a party and it was hard for me to hold my hors d'oeuvre plate, which we all know is suffering. Beyond, I mean, it's like waterboarding in New York. If you can't hold an hors d'oeuvre plate, um, you know, you are suffering beyond suffering because we all know, you, everyone you walk around in New York, you, you just carry an hors d'oeuvre plate in certain parts of the city just in case a waiter happens to be walking by on the sidewalk. And so she wasn't able to hold her hors d'oeuvre plate at a, at a party she was at. And I know that for most of you, I'm not going to have to say this, but I'll throw this out just for a point of, of information. She doesn't have any children of her own. I, I know that shocks people that um, she doesn't have children because, you know, maybe she'd understand a little if she did. But the nephew that she loves so much, she, she said she broke her wrist and it hurt her wrist so severely in the years that have gone on from 8 to 12 that now it's time that he's the mature age of 12. I mean, he's an adult now. He's the only person named in the lawsuit. Not his parents. No, only him. She's suing him for $127,000. For pain and suffering and whatever else for her injured wrist because the nephew she loves so much wanted a hug. So she took it to court. And the nephew was there with his dad. And oh, by the way, um, his mother died last year, I believe. So um, what do you do when the nephew you love, mother dies? Well, you wait a year because it would be horrible to sue him right away. So a year is plenty of time for an 11-year-old to mourn. So now he's 12. He's over the death in the family. He's old enough to understand. And I'm sure he's banked 127 grand by now because he's 12. So he's, what, at least three years into a career. And a good one, I'm sure, at 12. Whatever job he has is making decent money. It's in Manhattan, after all. So you've got to make a lot of money to live in the big city. So she sued him for 127 and so it goes to the jury, and the jury mulled over this probably 20 minutes so or so too long. I think it took them 25 minutes to come to the verdict and the idea she gets nothing but ridicule and laughter. And we're happy to provide both. Um, she got nothing 
judge, I mean, it was, and I, the judge should have spoken to her like Willy Wonka did at the end of the movie um, when he gave back the, 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 ever, the, the everlasting gobstopper. You get nothing. That's what the judge should have said to her and thrown her out. She then asked for an escort to leave the courtroom because there were so many members of the media that had gathered uh, to ridicule her and to take pictures of this woman. Um, And she looks like such a nice lady. When you look at that face, you think that is a very nice woman. Smiling. I mean, she looks like a very nice woman. How do you... So she wanted to leave through a private entrance or a private exit from the courthouse, and she wanted an escort because she didn't want to talk to the media. I don't know how out of touch you can possibly be to sue a 12-year-old. I didn't know you could sue a 12-year-old. I didn't know you were allowed. I I knew you could sue a parent. If you believe a child had acted irresponsibly, you sue the parents and say they should have known better. But she said, I love him. He's a great kid. I love my nephew very, very much. And uh, I'll always love him, but he's, he's, he's got to pay. I mean, he's, you know, what? Of the damage done, she testified. She didn't complain at the time um, because she said uh, life had been very difficult since the injury. Um, I love this quote. I was at a party recently. It was difficult to hold my hors d'oeuvre plate. I just, I love that quote. I think if that is an example of, of first world problems, I don't know what is. Because every one of you right now that may be at work, I'm sure you, your heart bleeds for this. A matter of fact, here's what I'm going to suggest. This isn't my show. If this were my show, I would do it. But this is the Pat and Stu show. So I'm sitting in for them. So I'm respectfully, I'm going to ask. I'm going to make this formal request. And I think all of you should send emails to Pat and Stu. The request should be made that Pat and Stu start a GoFundMe page for this woman. I think that that Pat himself should be the first one to donate. I mean, if he's got a heart at all, he should be the first one to give money. The the benevolence here, they're known for giving money to great causes. And I think the Pat and Stu show should lead the charge. And they should start a GoFundMe page for this woman to help her with her pain and suffering. I mean, she can't hold an hors d'oeuvre plate in New York for, for God's sakes. I mean, how much suffering does one woman have to do? So she's, uh, she's sued. The jury members reportedly took 25 minutes, and uh, she asked for an escort to leave the courtroom. So there you have it. Um, we, we've gone over today so much suffering. We, we see the plight of the Israeli people and what's happening in the streets of, of Israel and, and in Jerusalem with, and what's happening there and now in the streets of Manhattan, we're seeing such horrible suffering. And you can make a difference. So I think um, we'll do that. For the re- we'll get Pat and Stu on this. I'll, I'm gonna, I'll make the suggestion when I see them. And we'll see if we can't get that working for her. We'll get a GoFundMe page. Um, according to the New York Times, uh, don't mess with my, more ridiculousness, by the way, don't mess with my bacon, egg, and cheese. Um, so... In New Jersey, one of New York City, though, they have a different, they have a character of their own. What makes New York 
different is the way they make their sandwiches, but one person is outraged. The sandwich is being designed to satisfy practical needs rather than um, making it. So someone's complaining because it's a fancy sandwich now. Uh, any attempt to make the morning egg sandwich purveyors get dressed up and march in a fancy food parade with the celebrity donut shops is ridiculous. It, it chases off New Yorkers. They're, they said trying to improve the breakfast sandwich by spending more on bacon is like telling a fireman who just dragged four kids out of a burning house to change his shirt before going on the evening news. What? So in New York, whoever this guy is, I think he's the brother of the woman that is suing her nephew. We're complaining about egg sandwiches in New York. There it is. That's a beautiful thing right there. The beautiful egg sandwich. We can't do any. We don't want to destroy that. The great virtue of the bacon and egg choice on a roll or its variations is in what it doesn't do. So another thing we should change. I think we'll get Jeffy on the food one, though. We'll get Jeffy here to get on the bandwagon about the bacon and egg sandwich. Do you think the rest of the world looks at us like we're the Kardashians? I mean, ever? I mean, do you think that other parts of the world look at American culture and say you really are? If if the entire world was like a TV network, wouldn't we be the Kardashians? I think we would. I think... We are, we've got a woman that sues her nephew because she can't hold an hors d'oeuvre plate because he hugged her too hard. And you've got people complaining about wanting to change our bacon and egg sandwiches and make them too fancy. If that's our problems, I'm pretty happy about us. We're good. I mean, we don't need Hillary. We don't need Bernie. We don't need any of them. We don't need them to fix the problems. We're in pretty good shape. All we've got to worry about is the calorie count. Make sure you only have a small soda. We can't put it in too big and make it too fat. But we're doing all right. We're, we're, we're doing just fine. All right, more to get to. We've got a few minutes left in the show. Uh, more ridiculousness to close things out with. Um, I get to spend a few more minutes with you. Thanks for the social media hookups. Again, some people I'll reach out to during the commercial breaks. My name is Mike Broomhead. This is the Pat and Stu Show. Stick around. They haven't thrown me out of the building yet, so we'll see if I can survive the last segment of the show on a topic that is, uh, uh, well, this one may get me thrown out of the building. Uh, my name is Mike Broomhead. It's the Pat and Stu Show. I'm just giving you my name in case they pull me off the stage before it's over. Um, in Toronto, the University of Toronto's elite university college uh, decided to do what many colleges across the country are doing. They are moving in the direction of gender neutrality. Um which is funny because that's exactly the opposite of what college kids go to college for. Uh, so they decided there would be no gender-specific showers, restrooms, and saw no problem with this whatsoever. Until you figure, and I want, uh, see, I'm 48, so I think of this like a parent and not a kid. You got kids in college. You got a daughter, and you just hope she makes good decisions. So you warn her about all kinds of stuff, and you send her off to college. And then she gets there, and she finds out that at the end of the hallway, in the shower, it could be her roommate, 
in the shower next to her, or it could be one of the guys down the hall, and ain't nothing separating you but a little curtain. Nobody saw a problem. Shocking as it may sound to you, they started to rethink the gender neutrality idea because some of the guys were bringing cell phones into the shower and videotaping the girls in the shower next to them. No one in Toronto saw this coming. Now, the Canadians are quite possibly the most polite people in the entire world, but even they had to see this coming, right? I mean, they do know how, how other Canadians are created, correct? I mean, they do understand that college guys are going to think that may be a naked girl in the shower next to me. Let's see. And the way you see is to hold your cell phone over the shower and videotape the girls on the other side. So what they're going to do now is they're going to have girls' locker rooms or showers, boys' showers, and for those adventurous types, there are going to have some gender-neutral showers as well. So in the future, ladies in Toronto, if you shower in the gender-neutral shower, you are asking for it because you got a shower that's just the girls. And if you ask yourself, why was it the girl being filmed and not the guy being filmed by a girl, it's because men are pigs, because we will take any opportunity we can, and, and ladies just don't think that way. Girls, for the most part, don't think that way. But they didn't see this coming. College kids, alcohol, first time away from home, dorm rooms, they never saw this coming. And this is all in response to the politically correct movement, and cities are doing this. Uh, they're doing this all over the country. Um, in uh, a place, uh, I can, they're not in business anymore, I can give the name. There was a place called Anderson's Fifth Estate in my hometown. It was an iconic place. And a woman that worked for a city, the city of Scottsdale, Arizona, transgendered woman named Michelle and a couple of her transgender friends would go there. And then they would congregate in the ladies' room. Well, some of the ladies that went into the ladies' room complained there are men in dresses in the ladies' room. So the owner went to this woman and said, do me a favor, use the men's room. You are men. And they got offended and raised a big ruckus about the whole thing and said, we don't feel comfortable in the men's room because we're wearing dresses. And my reply was, well, the ladies don't feel comfortable with you in the ladies' room. So if this is about comfort, why does your comfort win? I mean, no offense. I don't, I don't far be it for me to be gross. I've made it all the way through this show without being gross. But when a lady goes into the stall and sits down, she doesn't want to see size 14 pumps with the feet facing the opposite direction. And they were uncomfortable. So if it's about comfort, who wins? In the end, um, Anderson's Fifth Estate closed down and uh, reopened as a gay bar. That's a true story. They reopened as a gay bar. It's closed now. But at what point in our society do we look at each other and say, equal is equal, and comfort is based on, on uh, need sometimes? There's no less right for a woman to say, I don't feel comfortable in a restroom with a man in a dress. Now, that person can say, how offensive are you? I identify as a woman. How dare you call me a man? That's all you can, you can say you are whatever you want to say you are. 
it doesn't change that that woman has a right to feel as comfortable as you have a right to feel. You don't want to use the men's room because you're not comfortable in the men's room. Well, you can say that. It doesn't change your anatomy. You can say what you want. Now, if if anything I'm saying is offending someone that's transgender, then I'm sorry that you don't see that you're wrong. I'm not saying being transgendered is wrong. You should be able to live your life. But you have to understand that other people are as entitled to comfort as you are. And so now on a college campus, we are going to go to gender-neutral showers and restrooms on the off chance that there's somebody on the hallway that is of one gender, that identifies as another gender, and wants to go into the restroom that makes them feel comfortable, and everybody else has to be on pins and needles so that your daughter or my daughter has to go into the shower and worry about a cell phone camera over the top of the wall because somebody on the hall might be identifying as a different gender. Not a soul in the world sees that as sane. This isn't a criticism of transgender. It's not calling people names. It's not calling them sinners. It's not being hateful. It's people are people. And if you're transgender and you're making the transition from one gender to the other, there are certain things that you may have to endure that doesn't mean they should be violent, that doesn't mean that you should be threatened, but come on. College campuses and gender neutral anything is trouble. We know that. Young people home away from away from home for the first time mixing alcohol, there's trouble. All right, we're just about out of time. Uh, thank you again for letting me to be, be on the show today. Um, I, at Broomhead Show on Twitter, Mike Broomhead on Instagram. If you want to follow me for the most fun blurry pictures you'll ever see, you can follow me there. Uh, I appreciate the time for being with you this week. Uh, Pat and Stu will be back you know, sometime, vacation, whatever they do with all their time off. Um, again, my name is Mike Broomhead. Thanks for being here. Have a great day, everyone. God bless. God bless.